Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Apia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and a church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you for God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love is giving me great joy and encouragement because your brother have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, and now he has become useful to both you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would like to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would be seen forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand, will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do every, even more than I ask. And one more thing. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Paphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke my fellow workers. The grace of his Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is God's word. You may be seated. Some of you came in a little bit late, and while we normally uh, don't do announcements before the sermon, uh, just uh, just uh, bear with me for 30 seconds. Uh, I want to repeat an announcement uh, for those that kind of came in a little bit late. Uh, we are uh, in, in the middle of a kind of an unprecedented uh, traffic uh, uh, run on the, uh, on the care cottage right now. 
there's, there are a lot of folks in, in need right now. And uh, the care cottage is, is one of the oases, one of, one of the places where they can find help and they can, they can find some resources to help them get through the, through the month. And that is in the area of food and in clothing. And right now there are just a lot, a lot of families that are in that kind of need right now. And we're asking uh, the members of our church family, many of you are already involved in one way or another. We thank you for, for all of your service, but, but we could really use some clothing. Uh, some used men's clothing, children's clothing, women's clothing. We can use blankets. With the weather turning cold right now, we could use some, some jackets. If these are some items that you could donate to the Care Cottage, there's a couple of places where you can donate it. It's here on this campus or across the parking lot. There's a, there's a big bin out there by the house that is designated the Care Cottage and where these families are going to receive this help. You can take those, those goods there. We also, because of the traffic going through the care cottage right now, we need some, some help on Wednesday mornings and Friday mornings uh, for about three hours. If you could come and, and to help do some of the processing, uh, do some of the packing of the, uh, the, the food items, uh, carrying them out to, to these folks' cars when they need that kind of help, uh, praying with them or, or talking with them or, or doing the kinds of things that we want to do as God's people to, to minister to them, we could really use your help. Uh, David Banton is going to be out in the family room, and he would love to talk to you if, uh, if you have some desire to work that way or have some questions about how you might be put to work at the care cottage. Make sure that you see him. Uh, also, they're going to be doing some delivering, uh, or, or I take that back, they're going to be picking up some food at the, one of the local HEBs, and they're going to be leaving with a U-Haul about 5 o'clock tomorrow from the church parking lot. If you can help load that truck up, that would be very, very, very uh, they, they would be grateful for that kind of help. And if you can't quite get here at 5 or a little bit before 5, but you get here around 6 or so to help unload it into the garage and into the pantry areas of the care cottage, that would be a great thing as well. Uh, one quick thing about tonight. As you know, we're going through every book of the Bible this year from Genesis to Revelation. Cody Spear, our youth uh, minister, is going to be doing the book of Hebrews tonight. And uh, have... have uh, really benefited from, from Cody's uh, preaching and from his teaching in the past. I know that you'll be blessed tonight. Come and hear him. He's done a lot of work in Hebrews over the last couple of years or so. It's one of his, his, uh, his favorite books, and you will be blessed by his, uh, his speaking to you tonight about the book of Hebrews. Let's pray, and then we're going to think about Philemon in the time we have left this morning. Father, you, in so many different ways, have shown us that you are a great and a mighty God. We see the power. We, we even sense it reverberating in our own body when we, we, we hear the thunder and we see the lightning. And as we drive through the neighborhood and, and see how trees have, have been split apart by, by the, the power that is a part of your creation. But more than that, Father, you have revealed to us that you, you love our souls. You love us as your children. That you are generous in your blessing and in that love. You are generous in your mercy and, and in pouring out blessing upon our life every day. We're so thankful for this. And the way that through this entire Bible, throughout this entire year, it's been revealed to us over and over and over Again, the changes that You are bringing into Your world that is full of thorns and thistles. 
the changes that You are bringing because of the Gospel. And as we study this morning, Father, what we're asking is that You'll help us to have eyes to see it and ears to hear it, to ponder on it, to, to contemplate the greatness and the majesty of, of what Your Gospel does to a human being when that Gospel comes all the way down and resides in that person. Father, bless us in this way, and we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Statement up here on the screen that I'll share with you, uh, not really anything that you need to fill in the blanks as we normally do with these sermons and the outline that you find in the announcement sheet, but just a quick reminder that as we go through this study, one of the things that we want to have as kind of the parameters as we look at the Word of God is that the Bible's not a collection of random stories. It's not hodgepodge. It's not a potpourri of, of all of these different uh, myths and proverbial uh, statements and narratives that are just kind of thrown together and they become the Bible. That's not the Bible. The Bible is not a collection of random stories. It's one story from Genesis to Revelation. It is the story about God and the creation of, of, of man and what went wrong in that relationship as sin is introduced into the world when, when we decided that we had the power between our two ears and between our two hands to manage the, our own affairs. And sin was introduced, rebellion was introduced into the world. The thorns and the thistles of the curse of Genesis 3 introduced into the world. And then what God is doing to put it back together. Now, uh, Edward has uh, already read to us this morning the entire book, 25 verses called Philemon. Entire letter was just read for us. But I want to begin by reading an ancient document by a Roman known as Pliny the Younger. He was raised by a more famous uncle, Pliny the Elder. He was a lawyer by, by training, although he held a lot of civic positions. In A.D. 100, about 70 years after the time of Jesus, he was elected to the councilship, which during this period of time was not necessarily as powerful as it had been in decades previously, but it was still the highest civic honor that, that he could hold. And he is sent to, to Pontus and Bithynia, which is the northern part of, of Turkey today. He was sent there by the emperor Trajan. Uh, Pliny is sort of famous, especially for those of us who study the Bible. Pliny is sort of famous because he has written lots and lots of letters to important people there in the first century A.D., some of which are sort of puzzled letters about these people that he's encountering called Christians. And one letter in particular is important for us this morning. It was written by Pliny, uh, and not quite sure of the date exactly, but uh, probably during that period of time when he's in northern Turkey, the area of Pontus or Bithynia, he's writing this letter to a fellow by the name of Sabi, uh, Sabinianus, who um, is, is a friend of his. And they have a problem that I think that you'll recognize as I go through the letter. And Pliny writes to this Sabinianus, he says, you told me you had been angry with a freed man of yours, and now he's come to see me. He threw himself at my feet and clung on to me as though I were you. He wept a lot, he asked a lot, though he kept quiet about a lot too. To sum it up, he made me believe that he was genuinely sorry. I think he is a changed character because he really does feel that he did wrong. Yes, I know you're angry. And I know too that you have a right to be angry. But mercy earns most praise when anger is fully justified. Once you loved this fellow, and I hope you will love him again, for the moment it's enough if you let yourself be placated. You can always be angry again if he deserves it, 
And you'll have all the more reason if you've been placated now. He's young. He's in tears. And you have a kind heart. Make all that count. Don't torture him. And don't torture yourself either. Anger is always torture for a soft heart like yours. I am afraid it will look as though I'm putting pressure on you, but not simply making a request. But I'm going to do it anyway, and all the more fully and thoroughly, because I've given him a sharp and severe talking to, and I've warned him clearly that I won't make such a request again. This was because he needed a good fright, and I said it to him rather than to you, because it's possible that I shall make another request and receive it too, always supposing it's an appropriate thing for me to ask and for you to grant. Sincerely yours, plenty, etc., etc., etc. In this letter, there are three parties. There's Pliny the Younger, who is at the very top of the food chain. He is a made individual in the Roman Empire. He's been elected to a councilship. He is famous. He is known by name by the Roman Emperor. He's at the top of the food chain. And then right there on one of those middle rungs is a fellow by the name of Sabinianus, who is right there under, under, um, under Pliny, but above this unnamed freedman, this, this fellow who was once a slave, but now he's been freed, he's, he's right above this unnamed freedman who is going to be at the bottom of the pecking order. Uh, the letter that I just uh, read to you is a typical letter in the ancient world, and Pliny is only doing what was a natural thing for a man in his position to do in that day, and that's to give advice. He writes, mercy looks even better when you have a right to be angry. And Sabinianus would have been in the position where he wanted to stay in the good graces of a great and a famous man like Pliny. And so he would have complied with the advice. He would have done what Pliny was asking and requesting him to do. But the forgiveness would have been conditional on the freedman's keeping his nose clean from here on out. When a, when a, a slave became a, a freedman, there was usually, uh, in fact, probably the majority of the time, not a leaving to make one's own way into the world. The freedman, even though uh, he does have that right to be able to leave, has become so dependent upon his, his benefactor that he in no way can think of himself surviving. And so he's still in the employment. And so that forgiveness would have been conditional on the freedman keeping his nose clean from here on out. And in so doing, making all of these conditions the way that they would have been in the ancient world and the, even in the modern world, what is being certainly reestablished is the position of advantage that Sabinianus would have had over the freedmen. There's the apology. He's coming back. He's, he's, he's trying to placate uh, Sabinianus. And Sabinianus is going to, you know, maybe not in a patronizing way, but he is going to give the guy some forgiveness. But it's going to be conditional as long as you keep your nose clean. About the only thing that the freedman has going for him right now is that he is not a runaway slave, which would have called for some very dire punishments that probably could not have been avoided in that culture. In the end... All Pliny has done in this letter is to reestablish the proper, acceptable social order of the day. Pliny gets to stay on top. Advice giver to the world. Known by emperors. Sabinianus is in the middle position. He may not be top dog. He may not be able to, to, to wield power the way that Pliny does. But at least he has a couple of guys working for him. 
He's in that middle rung. He has a little bit of power. He's sort of your upper middle class. And then you have the freedmen on the bottom. And in the end, everyone is happy and the world is back the way that it should be. Which now brings us to the letter uh, that Paul has written to Philemon. If you listen carefully to both Philemon's and Pliny's letters, you would have heard some similarities. Things like, I could tell you what to do, but I'm not going to based on love. or I'll appeal to you on, on love or friendship. There's frequent references to the relationship, a relationship that's cordial, friendship. There's a very cordial tone in both letters. But there also are some dissimilarities. Pliny's letter, he's on top of the world. Paul, on the other hand, is not at the top of the social ladder, but he is where, church? He's in prison. He's in prison. Onesimus is not a freedman, but he is a runaway slave. And in the letter that Paul has written to Philemon, there are not three parties, but there are four that are represented. You have Paul who wrote the letter, uh, Onesimus who is the runaway slave. You have Philemon who is the owner of Onesimus. And you have Jesus the Christ. And that is what's going to make the difference in this letter. In fact, this letter uh, over the years uh, has become very important to me. Uh, I, I think that it is a letter that we should, we should spend some time just really pondering what it is that's going on here behind the words. In fact, uh, there, there's a, a fellow by the name of N.T. Wright that has written some on Philemon. And N.T. Wright has said about the letter of Philemon, the one that we're studying this morning, he says, if we had no other first century evidence for the movement that came to be called Christianity, this letter ought to make us think something is going on here. Something is different. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. Paul, as you know, did not plant the church in Colossae, but he knows some people there. And so Paul is probably in prison. He's in, probably in prison in Ephesus, maybe about 80 miles away. And while he's in prison, and he refers to being in chains and being a prisoner in verse 9 and verse 10 and verse 23 of this, of this short little book, Onesimus comes to him as a runaway slave of Philemon, and he needs Paul to help him with Philemon. Now, in the meantime, Onesimus has become a Christian. At some point, he becomes a believer, a disciple of Jesus. And in the meantime, he has become very, very important to Paul. So Paul, knowing Onesimus and knowing Philemon, he writes a letter back to Philemon, and he begins his letter the way that he always does with thanksgiving. He writes, beginning in verse 4, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I, I hear about your love for all His holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of, say it with me, every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. He says, your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Notice uh, the two things that Paul mentions about the character of Philemon. He says love and faith. You have faith towards Christ. You have faith in Christ. You have a faith that has changed you into the kind of person that loves God's holy people. 
You have faith towards Christ. You have love towards the church. These are the character traits of Philemon that stand out to Paul as he, as he writes back to Philemon about Onesimus. And Paul thinks of, of, of Philemon as being in partnership with him. That you're a fellow worker. That you're somebody that's participating in the expanding of the borders of the kingdom, the horizons of the kingdom upon the planet. And that's where he comes to the request. Paul says, I don't want to order you. I want to appeal to you. I want to appeal to you on, uh, in, in love. I want to appeal to you in love on behalf of Onesimus. But before he makes the request, notice what he does. He begins to, 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 to help Philemon think about Onesimus in a different kind of a way. He reframes Onesimus. He says in verse 10, I appeal to you for my what? For my what? Very important. My son... Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. And then uh, two verses later in verse 12, he says, I'm sending him, Onesimus, who is my very heart, back to you. And then we drop down to verses 15 and 16. He says, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a Dear, say it, church, brother. He's very dear to me. But even dearer to you. Both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. He wants Philemon to think of Onesimus as a beloved brother. He wants Philemon to think of Onesimus as Paul's beloved son. And then in verse 17, he makes the request. If you consider me a partner, welcome him. Welcome him as you welcome me. Not just give him his old job back. Don't just allow him to come back and to have his old job back, but grind him under your thumb. Not just bring him back, but welcome him like you would welcome me. Paul says Philemon is to welcome Onesimus. Now, if you miss what Paul is doing here, if you miss what Paul is writing in that verse, you will miss the revolution that Paul is attempting to trigger in the social fabric of the first century Mediterranean culture. It is to miss what Paul believes the kingdom of God is doing in the world when the gospel takes residence in the human heart. Now, I think to see it a little bit more clearly, we want to take a half step, not a full step, but a half step back from Philemon. For, for many years, I would even, I'm at that age where I can say for many decades now, I've had people ask, why is there no blatant Christian condemnation of slavery? Maybe you've heard that too. Modern people have a problem with Paul talking about the relationships between slaves and masters rather than than acting as an abolitionist. And in the black and white world of a moralist, the only issue is set him free. Is to set him free. 
And I think that there maybe there's a possible hint of that at the end of the letter where Paul in verse 21 says he's confident that Philemon will do even more than he asks. As a man and a fellow brother. But think for a moment about if Paul only gets that far and no further. Paul could have said, here's what I want you to do, Philemon. Onesimus is coming back. He is now your brother in Christ. Set him free. And Philemon could have said angrily, okay, but I never want to see Onesimus again. I'm angry. I deserve to be angry. He has is, he is not done what is right. Okay, I'll set him free, but I never want to see Onesimus ever again. That would have meant defeat for Paul. And Onesimus. And Philemon. And the kingdom. For Paul, the Gospel is not just bringing people to God, but includes bringing people together in Christ. And that happens at a couple of different levels. One is, all of a sudden, everybody realizes that there is no way that they can get into the kingdom of God, that they can get into the kingdom of heaven, have a relationship with God, entertain any kind of a relationship with God on their own merit, on their own righteousness, on their own actions, by what they do. They realize that they need that forgiveness. But at another level, they see that they're all the same. Everybody is leveled at the foot of the cross. For Paul, the Gospel is not just bringing people to God, but includes bringing people together. It's about welcoming, regardless of status. And Paul and Philemon and Onesimus are now part of the body of Christ that radically outflanks their social status. And overruns it. And it's why Paul can write to the church in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither, you say it, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all, say it, one in Christ Jesus. The Gospel not only saves you, but changes you. And changes, in, in one area, changes the way that you see people, the way that you view other human beings. And with a biblical view of man being made in the image of God along with the Gospel that brings people together in love, and levels all people at the foot of the cross wherever Christianity has gone. It has worked to eradicate slavery, to stop the oppression of women. It has condemned genocide. It has gone to do good where there are thorns and thistles among human, be among human people. Human people. <laughs> it's a kind of a redundancy when you say But you know what I mean. What Paul has done is completely revolutionized the way that Philemon is going to look at Onesimus. And what Paul is helping us to do is, is to see people differently. To change the way that, that, that we, 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 we not only relate to each other, but the way that we can potentially and possibly relate to every other human being out there. 
You know, you can even imagine Paul leaving Ephesus and, and headed to, to Colossae, to the home of Philemon. And with the reunion of Onesimus and Philemon in his mind, he's thinking about it. Paul sits down while he's in Colossae and he writes the letter that we call 2 Corinthians. And in the fifth chapter he says, you know, from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. I heard a... a, a a statement, and maybe I've shared it with you. I've, I, I've thought about it uh, constantly. Well, whatever constantly means for a guy like me, I think, I think about it a lot. A guy got up uh, one time in a sermon and said, Jesus Christ did not come to make the world a better place. He came to build His church. I think he's right. The gospel brings people into fellowship with God and in fellowship with each other. The confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the recognition of Christ being the Son of God is what Christ is building His church on. But as the gospel that has pulled us to God and has pulled us together begins to, 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 to develop us and to change us as we become disciples of Jesus. And the Word of God begins to resonate not just as information, but as what it is, the Word of God that changes us and revolutionizes us. And not only gives us guidelines and parameters, but, but also is part of the impetus that, that we go out into this world every day. That's how the Gospel makes the world a better place. By sending those kinds of people out into it. Not just legislating morality, but sending a people made righteous because of the righteousness of Christ into that world with their hearts overflowing with love. Living out the ramifications of that Gospel. And therefore being very interested in the things that God is interested in. In the areas of injustice or resources or whatever they might, power, whatever they might be. And it's here, it's here that we are reminded that at the, the, the most basic level, it is the Christ that set us free from our own enslavement. And one of the things that, that Jesus does is tell a parable about this son who decided that he wished his father was dead. And he wanted to get that inheritance from his father and the father was still alive. So he goes anyway and is really, really disrespectful to, to his father and says, I, I know that someday the inheritance is going to be mine, but it will probably come to me at a point where I'm, I'm too burned out and too broken down to enjoy it. Could you give it to me now? 
And for some reason, that's not explained in the parable by Jesus. He gives, the Father gives the Son these resources. And the Son leaves and the Son goes and does whatever He wants to do. And all He does is spiral down into what can be described in metaphor as a life that is surrounded by pigs and in the pig mud and eating the pig food. And at one point, this boy comes to his senses. And he decides that he needs to get himself home. And he knows that, you know, having left the home the way that he did, there's going to be trouble on that front porch. There's going to be trouble on that front porch. But he's got to go back there anyway because there's, there's no other way that he's going to be able to make it. So he makes his way back and he begins to rehearse all of these things that he's going to say. Just, just make me a slave or, or make me a hired hand. I, you know, I don't deserve... You know. And while he's coming up the driveway, the Father, Jesus says, does something that no Middle Eastern patriarch would ever do. And that is to wrap his cloaks up between his legs and tuck it in and to run. If you're over the age of 30 in the Middle East, you run nowhere. But this old man does. And before the son can kind of get out, you know, the, the thing that he's wanting to say to his dad, the old man grabs him and throws him to the ground, tackles him so, with a hug so hard he just drops to the ground. And he kisses him. And we're going, how in the world? I mean the most disrespectful thing this guy could have done was to say, I wish you were dead so that you could give me the money now so I can go do what I want to do. How could that old man kiss him? Because he had been kissing him in his mind and heart every day. And he picks the boy up and he says, put a ring on his finger and put a robe on his shoulders and bring out the fatted calf. This son that was gone and, and gone off into a far country has now come home. He's been welcomed back. And when that, when you begin to realize that that's, that's what happens in the Gospel, and you realize that, that God is kissing you and putting a ring on your finger and putting a robe on your shoulders and killing the fatted calf for you and welcoming you back even though you know you do not deserve it at all. Then you begin to see other human beings very differently. Very differently. And you begin to see the potential of the Gospel in every person. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. Every time I think about the story of the prodigal son, I just want to praise God. I just want to praise God. And that's what we're going to do. But maybe during the singing of this song, there are some things in your life that are just not right. Maybe you need to come home. Maybe you didn't think that you would be welcomed. Let me tell you that over and over and over, the Bible is about welcoming people back into the embrace of God. We'll have some of our shepherds who are our spiritual leaders of our church family here, down here at the front. If there are ways that we can minister to you, I don't know what they might be, but whatever they are, we want you to come home and we want you to talk to these shepherds down here at the front that stand and praise God together. Jesus, would I know more of His grace to us?